Uh, good morning. Uh, for the past uh, two months or so, we've been uh, looking at a series called The Portraits of Grace in the Old Testament. Uh, in this series, we've been looking at stories in the Old Testament and seeing how it points forward to the grace of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And today, we'll close off this series, as the summer is coming to a close, with what I think is one of the most vivid and clear pictures of the gospel of grace, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, David in this passage is actually a really good picture. It's a, he's a good reflection of who God is. Now, David isn't always a good reflection. David, like us, he is sinful uh, and he is a flawed man. But on this occasion, here in 2 Samuel 9, David gives us a really good glimpse as to what God or who God is like. There are three actions here that David does that I want to reflect on because I think it's what God does for us. And the three actions that he does is he resists justice or he withholds justice. Second, he shows mercy. And third, he gives grace. So let's get right into the story. In 2 Samuel 9, David, at this point, he is the king of Israel. He is on his throne, his reign has been established, and his kingdom is at peace. Now, in this state, David, he remembers a promise that he made with his best friend named Jonathan. See, years ago, David made a promise with Jonathan that he would show loving kindness to his family no matter what happened. And so, David, having remembered this promise, now he begins to seek out anyone who belonged to Jonathan's family. And as he seeks this out, he discovers that there's one family member. There was a son. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. And so David begins to seek him out. If I can give you a little background information that I think might be helpful here in this case, it's this. Though David and Jonathan, though they were best friends, their families were actually enemies. See, Jonathan was, uh, his family was the royal family before David. And while David was ascending to the throne as God's chosen king, Saul, or Jonathan's father, had this ongoing battle with David for well over a dozen years. In fact, Saul, Jonathan's father, tried to kill David numerous times. And so when David finally becomes king, when he eventually becomes king, all of Jonathan's family naturally becomes enemies of the state. Now, if we understand this context correctly, the only reason why David would actually seek out Jonathan's family is to put him to death, or put them to death, or put them in prison so that they would no longer pose a threat to David's kingdom. This was quite natural, uh, quite common in ancient regimes and kingdoms. It's also, there, there's something similar that we find in, uh, in North Korea today. I'm not sure if you know, but in North Korea, there's this three generation of punishment rule. If someone is found guilty of a crime, especially a crime against the state, the government would not only capture that one individual, but they would put his or her entire family in a prison camp, and not only their entire family, but the subsequent three generations after they would be put in 
a detention camp. You see, Mephibosheth, he understands this. He knows that he is an enemy of the state. I mean, just notice where he is hiding. He's found in a place called Lodabar. Lo means no, and the bar means pasture. He is in a land that has no pastures. If I can translate it dynamically, he is in a place called nowhere. Mephibosheth is hiding. He is hiding and in fear because he knows that he is an enemy of the state. But David, he seeks out his enemy not to bring justice or to get rid of him because he's a threat, but he seeks him out withholding justice, resisting justice, and he seeks him to show loving kindness. Now, after David seeks him out, Mephibosheth, he comes forward. They find him and they bring him forward. Now, there's something about Mephibosheth that we should know, and it's that he is crippled. He's lame in both feet. Now, he wasn't born this way, but he experienced a freak accident. When he was five years old, when he was five years old, news had come that Saul and all of his family were defeated. And so the nurse picks up Mephibosheth, trying to run away because now they know that their family is an enemy of the state. So the nurse picks him up and she's running away, she's fleeing, and she drops him. Now we don't know where or how she dropped him, but she dropped him so that he became lame in both feet. He became crippled. So, here is this man who is an enemy of the state, who has been hiding in the middle of nowhere in fear, and he's crippled. And now when he comes before the king, when he comes before David, we have to notice what he does. Verse 6 tells us he bowed down. I mean, think about how painful it must have been for a man who was crippled in both legs to actually throw himself down on the floor like that. But Mephibosheth had no choice. He is holding on for his dear life. But I want you to notice in today's passage how David responds. What is the first word out of David's mouth? He says, Mephibosheth. David calls this crippled man by name. And the very next thing he says is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. David, he withholds mercy. He resists, or excuse me, he resists justice. And he shows mercy. And the story continues, and it gets even more shocking as we read on. David says, I will restore to you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather Saul. Saul, the same Saul who tried to kill him. And then he says, from now on, Mephibosheth, you will always eat at my table. I think it's important that we slow down and see how intentional David is in restoring this man. He calls him by name, Mephibosheth. You know, this name actually means shame. 
We're not exactly sure when he was named this, but literally his name means from the mouth of shame. And perhaps it was the first time in a long time that someone had ever spoken his name. If someone called out to him previously, it was probably only to mock him or to shame him. You know, there are certain names in America that are royalty. The Kennedys, the Bushes, but there are also other names that are used to mock and to shame. Lewinsky, McVeigh, Simpson. Mephibosheth was one of those names. He was related to the previous regime, to King Saul, and King Saul's ending was quite tragic. His family bore the name of shame. Since the age of five, no one has ever called out to him except in disgust or shame. But here this man is, many, many years later, as a crippled man. And when the king calls out to him, he calls out his name, not in disgust or in shame, but in delight, in loving kindness. He says, Mephibosheth. Further, David, he restores him. He restores his dignity by giving him land. Mephibosheth is no longer a man in the land of Lodabar, in the land of no pasture, but he becomes a land owner. The crippled becomes a regular person. And David, he goes one step further. Not only does he show mercy, but he gives grace by saying, from now on, Mephibosheth, you will sit at my table always. You know, there's this well-known saying that justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you get what you don't deserve. But grace, grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. David, he resists justice, he shows mercy, and he gives grace. You know, I think we need to think about this reversal of fortune for a moment. Why does David do this? Why does he show such love and compassion? Why does he give him this grace? The answer is because of Jonathan. Friends, this story in 2 Samuel 9 is not unique to Mephibosheth. This is, in fact, your story, and this is, in fact, my story. God, he resists justice, he shows mercy, and he gives grace. You see, we who were once enemies with God, God, in his rich mercy, he showed forth his loving kindness not only by pardoning our sins, but by restoring us and receiving us into his family and seating us at his table. And just like Mephibosheth, the only reason why God does this, the reason why God does this has nothing to do with you or with me. 
You know, David brought Mephibosheth into his family not because of Mephibosheth, but because of Jonathan. Notice what David says. I will surely show kindness for the sake of Jonathan. You know, we are all like Mephibosheth. We are all like him in that we are dead dogs. We are all like him in that we were once in the land of no pastures, eating but never being filled, filling but never being satisfied. But for the sake of Jesus, the greater and better Jonathan, we are all restored. Our shame is covered, our guilt is forgiven, and we are invited to God's table always. You know, there's this word in this passage that appears three times, this really key word. It shows up three times. And it's translated as kindness or loving kindness. But this word in the actual Hebrew is a word that is uh, hesed. I don't know if you know what this means. Maybe you might have met someone with the name hesed. And hesed is a very loaded word in the Old Testament. Some translate it as loving kindness, but I think that falls short a bit. I think hesed is best translated as covenant faithfulness. See, hesed has this notion of a loving loyalty. Hesed has to do with a promise. You see, David shows Hesed to Mephibosheth because of a promise that he made with Jonathan. And likewise, God shows us Hesed because of a promise he made with his son. You know, sometimes we uh, misunderstand God. You know, God isn't just simply kind. God isn't just nice. You know, God, he doesn't wake up one morning and he says, you know what? I want to be nice today. I'm going to do a good deed. You know, God isn't like Oprah on, during Christmas season saying, you get grace, you get grace, you get one. He's not like that. He isn't just magnanimous. He isn't just kind. He is, has said, he is faithful to his promise. He is a promise-keeping God. And God shows us this grace because or for the sake of Jesus. You know, Chuck Swindle famously said this. He's a pastor. He said this. Grace is God's favor shown to those of us who don't deserve it, to those who cannot earn it, and to those who will never be able to repay it. You know, I want to revise this slightly and say God's grace is favor shown on the basis of Jesus to those who don't deserve it, cannot earn it, and will never be able to repay it. You know, uh, more recently, there's a, uh, there was a story that uh, parallels, I think, closely the story of Mephibosheth. It was a story of a nine-year-old girl who was caught up in the bombings between the South Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. 
In fact, she was published and printed all over the papers and the media during the Vietnam War. I'm sure you might have seen this picture. It's a picture of a nine-year-old naked girl running with the smoke from the bombs in the background and soldiers leading them out. She was a girl by the name of King Phuc, a Vietnamese girl who was caught up in the bombing and who was severely burned. She was, so, she was severely burned that many were certain around her that she was going to die. Well, soon after this picture was taken, this changed, this transformed the perception of the war, and the war ended shortly thereafter. But still, Kim, she bore the scars from this war. She was burned severely. She nearly died, but she lived on. And Kim, she writes in her book this, describing the things that she experienced. She says this, quote, I continued to bear the crippling weight of anger, bitterness, and resentment toward those who caused my suffering. The searing fire that penetrated my body, the ensuing burn baths, the dry and itchy skin, the inability to sweat, which turned my flesh into an oven in Vietnam's sweltering heat. I craved relief that would never come and yet, despite every last external circumstance that threatened to overtake me, whether it was mind, body, and soul, she writes, the most agonizing pain I suffered during that season of life dwelt in my heart. I was alone as a person can be. I could not turn to a friend, for no one wished to befriend me. I was toxic, and everyone knew it. To be near me was to be near hardship. Wise people stayed away from me. I was alone atop a mountain of rage. Why was I made to wear these awful scars? It sounds a lot like Mephibosheth, someone who was scarred during war and someone who, as a result, was all alone. But she writes, everything changed in 1982. She was in Saigon Central Library just pulling religious books off the shelf, one by one. A book about Hinduism, about Buddhism, about Islam, and she pulled out a New Testament. She pulled out a New Testament and she began to read it and she writes, two things were clear to her. Two things were so clear as she read through the New Testament. First, Jesus, he claimed, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. That he was the only way to God the Father. And then as she read on, she said the second thing that was so clear was that Jesus suffered in defense of his claim. He was mocked, he was tortured, and he was killed. And she asks the question, if he was God, why would he endure such things? You know, she was surprised when she actually read the New Testament See, she grew up in a religion uh, in, the, in the Vietnam um, country called uh, Khao Dai. And in that religion, everyone is deity and everything is deity. And she heard of Jesus, she knew of Jesus, but she was never exposed to this side of Jesus. A Jesus who was wounded, a Jesus who actually bore scars. And she says the more she read, the more she came to believe that he was Truly who he said 
that he was and that he had really done what he had said he had done and that most importantly that he would really do all that he had promised in his words. As she read the New Testament over and over and the story of Jesus, the story of a wounded God, the story of a God who actually bore scars quite similar to hers, that's when she started making sense of her past. She started to make sense of her scars. It was through the one who bore scars on her behalf. And she writes, on the, on the eve of Christmas in 1982, she gave her life to Christ. You know, one of the most beautiful things about this story in 2 Samuel 9, one of the most beautiful things that I think is glossed over quite frequently is why David would seat him at the table. You know, if David wanted to make him royalty, if he wanted to give him equal privileges, he could have done so many other things. He could have made him prince over a region. He could have gave him a room in the royal house. But why did David mention this specifically? Why did he say to Mephibosheth, you are now going to sit at my table always? Why did David choose this? Because where is the only place where a crippled man where a crippled man's handicap is covered. It's at a table. The only place where Mephibosheth would forget his shame, the only place where he would forget his past was at a table where his legs would no longer show. And there he would sit at the table with the king and the princes and all royalty and he would laugh and he would eat and he would be restored fully at the king's table. Friends, I don't know what particular shame you carry around, and I don't know what sins remind you of your past. I don't know what mistakes are crippling you this morning, but when God calls you, when he invites you to his table, it is not to showcase these things, but with intention and love and care, he covers those things. And he tells you to eat and dine and to be family. Friends, this is grace. This is something you have to receive freely. The moment you think you deserve it, you forfeit it. The moment you think you could earn it, you will lose it. And the moment you think that you can repay it, you will relinquish it. The only response for you and I this morning is bowing down in our crippleness and saying, I am a dead dog, undeserving of such grace. You know, I um, just want to give you just one practical illustration. Um, you know, this um, disgrace that we have received, this grace that is freely offered by God, um, it's so powerful that it is transformative. You know, the Christian religion is best summed up by the word grace. You know, there's this well-known story that C.S. Lewis was in this 
that there was this room filled with religious leaders and they were all talking about what distinguishes Christianity? What makes Christianity what it is? And they were saying it's the incarnation. They were saying it's atonement and so on and so forth. And C.S. Lewis, he walks in and he says, what are you talking about? And they say, we're talking about what makes Christianity distinct. And C.S. Lewis says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And he says, it's grace that distinguishes the Christian religion. It's grace that distinguishes the church. It's grace that distinguishes Christians. And because of that, we ought to be gracious people. You know, this grace is free, yet it's so transformative. I want to draw your attention to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, a well, well-known passage as he describes what grace is. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not a result of works so that no one can boast. He says grace is free. This is something that you cannot earn. This is something that you do not deserve. It's great. But two chapters later at the end of Ephesians 4, he says this. Paul writes, he says, be now kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We read forgive, but it's actually, it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 2. The same word used for grace, charis. Because you have received grace, you have been saved by grace. Give grace to one another, just as Christ gave grace to you. We are called as a church as Christians, if there is any mark that we are to carry around, it is a mark to be gracious. But you know, too often I find in the church, in myself, that instead of being gracious, we are more gossipers. Instead of being peacemakers, we are, we are instigators. For those who have received this free grace that we, have, that we do not deserve, it is so powerful that it transforms us. You know, let me just uh, close with uh, this. I, um, you know, I have to be really honest here because um, when I became a Christian, one of the things that I really struggled to understand was 2 Samuel 9, this uh, act of David inviting Mephibosheth to the table. And I really struggled to understand this, this truth that God invited me to his table to eat, to fellowship, and to dine. I had a hard time understanding this. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, just, just my past. Like many of you, I grew up with immigrant parents. And we never had meals together. We never sat at the table together. The meals that we uh, sat, they were... Just too few. I, I, I can remember distinctly some, you know, those moments. The time was never right. We usually had dinner early. My dad, he came home late. And so I remember watching my father eat at the table in the living room, watching television. Holidays, when the families gathered, rarely did we. But the kids, of course, ate with the kids, and the adults ate with the adults. And rarely we had meals together. 
And I remember one, one time in junior high school, I recall this distinctly, um, somehow we ended up sitting at the table together. And it was just so awkward, I didn't know what to do. So I was having breakfast, and when my dad sat down, I just didn't know what to do and what that meant. So I just put the cereal box in front of me to obstruct his view and my view so that we would not look at each other. And I was just reading the back of the cereal box, hoping that the moment would soon end. You know, when I became a Christian later on and when the gospel told me that I had a place at God's table, that God invited me to his table to actually sit, you know, I couldn't quite understand what that meant. I couldn't really understand the gravity of that truth. I mean, what does it mean that Christ would consider me his brother, God, his father, and that we would eat at the same table at the same time as, a, as the same family? What does that mean? You know, I began to study more and more this, this passage, 2 Samuel 9, and this idea that the Lord invites us to his table. More and more I realized that Table fellowship means that all of your shame, all of your baggage, all of your past, all those things are rid, are, are gone away with. And that we sit, that I sit with Jesus, my brother, almost as equals, as co-heirs, as co-inheritors. That I am not a visitor, I am not a guest, but I am in the family of God. And may the Spirit cause you to understand these things as we come to God's table this morning. Let's pray.